Hello and welcome to another Light Reading Podcast. My name is Phil Harvey. I'm an editor here at Light Reading. And I'm John Rose, Global Chief Technology Officer of Dell Technologies. John, thank you so much for, uh, well, first of all, great to see you again. Yeah, it's been a while. It has been a while. <laughs> Thanks for, uh, for agreeing to do this. Uh, so uh, uh, we are at the Meritoc uh, Meritocracy Conference in Washington, D.C. Uh, that'll give you a time and date. So, uh, so uh, I'm, I'm not at Dell headquarters, although I do like having an excuse to go to Austin. Um, but uh, you're speaking here at the conference, and it, it's it's you've got an interesting perspective as a technologist because you've been on the telecom side, you know, your years with Nortel. You've been in you know Dell, which is you know serves basically every industry now. <laughs> yeah, pretty much <laughs> all infrastructure yep, all yep. the time. Um, and you know, at Light Reading, we're talking about a, lo a lot about the digital divide, and we're covering this new influx of spending that's coming in to uh, you know relieve the digital divide in some areas, but just basically boost infrastructure and broadband all yeah. over. Um, I guess the key question is, how well do you think the U.S. is positioned, either from a workforce point of view or an infrastructure point of view, to handle the influx of investment that's coming in? Yeah, you know, it depends how we use it. Okay. So um, the challenge, as you know, you know, and I have maybe a unique position because I was in what's called old telecom and yeah. now I'm in kind of new IT cloud world, uh, is, you know, the, the, the entire telecom industry is kind of in the middle of a, a digital transformation, mm -hmm. there, you know, and, and what, what we're seeing is an influx of cloud and IT technology. You know, I mean, there isn't a uh, carrier core in the world that isn't being virtualized right now, and right. the virtualization is not coming from telecom providers. It's coming from people like Dell and the cloud providers. And so, so there's, there's an awful lot of kind of commingling technology that's coming into the telecom environment. And that's good, and in a tier one operator, you can kind of see the stack reforming, and, and that's leading to eventually things like OpenRAN and other technologies. Broadband bill is a little different because we're going to inject a whole bunch of funding to try to solve for you know connectivity deserts and places mm -hmm. where there, there's underserved populations. And so, the the most important step at this point that people need to consider if we want to kind of address that need with the right technology is to realize that we should use the minimum sufficient advanced technology to solve the problem. What okay. I mean by that is, if you want to provide broadband connectivity to an underserved population. And the reason you're doing it is so that kids can get access to video conferencing to do remote learning. Right. It turns out that you could do that with a 5G standalone only environment. Okay. There's no reason to have 4G, 3G, 2G. There's no reason to have a voice service on it. And yet our general tendency is every time we talk about broadband, we talk about all generations of broadband, all legacy, Living all possible all. permutations. Yeah. And the reason that's so important is that the U.S. industry, which is kind of nascent right now, it's just re-emerging. Companies like Dell have only kind of been back into the telecom world for a number of years, and yeah. Google and Microsoft, Amazon all fall into that equation. We don't have a legacy. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so U.S. companies, by, by and large, can't address these older architectures we think there are places where legacy is necessary. You know, a tier one operator today would need to go back a few generations, but a new use case, if it's targeted and we're very careful about what to apply, might actually look like legacy-free environments. They might start with no technical debt, no legacy hangover. And we'll have to be just very deliberate about what problem are we solving? Can we solve it looking forward as opposed to assuming that that new problem also has to solve every old problem we've ever dealt with? And if we make those decisions 
I think we're pretty well positioned because you'll have a much broader ecosystem of suppliers. Right. It won't just be a couple of people that can solve it. It will be Dell and Google and Amazon and, and yeah. you know, Microsoft that can show up to the party. And that, that's the kind of interesting nuance right now about how do we fulfill the promise of the broadband infrastructure build out? Right. And are we careful about what types of technologies we specify so that the end result is that you get the maximum industry able to support it as opposed to over-specializing it and defining it that limits the options. Right, yeah, but the, I came from the uh, or conference I went to earlier this year was a uh, fiber broadband conference and they were, you know, they're very, uh, amazingly, they're very bullish on fiber. <laughs> um, and they, they were very much of the opinion that, you know, if it's not fiber, it's not broadband, the, the, the way forward is to get fiber to every, as many homes as possible and that sort of thing. But, but in doing so, like you say, it, it, that, you know, artificially limits the playing field, limits the addressable number of tech companies that could get involved. When you do that, I guess you, you, you apparently have to move at a slower pace. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, broadband's a really hard problem to solve for because, you know, I mean, we can talk about the actual definition of broadband and, and right. you know, it's clearly not just fiber. You can clearly deliver broadband systems over the air and over other media. Yeah. But the real existential problem you're trying to solve is to connect people, to connect yeah. people with sufficient network that they can accomplish the tasks that they need to accomplish. And that generally requires a reasonable amount of bandwidth, reasonable coverage, reasonable connectivity. There are many ways to do that. In fact, you know, in the, in the COVID era, we found a bunch of examples that we actually worked with our ecosystem and our own technologies to go build out private 5G environments in cities. Right. And we did that because that was the fastest path to apply the technology to be able to get connectivity into places in urban America that didn't have a provider that could deliver that service. Then the target was, candidly, in many cases, kids trying to be educated at home. Yeah. And we could do that in a span of a few months where it might take years to do it using a more conventional approach. And so it doesn't mean that you only do it that way. It just means if I have that tool, plus I have the big tier one networks, plus I have fiber, plus I have wireline connectivity of various flavors, I need to use all of them, and we need to be careful about over-rotating on any of them because, you know, ultimately the goal is the same. It's just, you know, courses for courses. Pick the right technology to solve the right problem, even and, in the wireless domain. And what's, you know, interesting about the pandemic and what it taught us was that a lot of, and I think, you know, it's been echoed here at this conference with a lot of the government agencies waking up to this as well, is that the needs of school kids are almost the exact same needs as <laughs> home workers, as government employees, as, you know, in almost all walks of life and all yeah. facets of society. So if we do get that right, yeah. then it's a much bigger a much bigger total addressable <laughs> market than just, you know, let's solve for a few school kids. Well, in fact, I'd argue they're some of the more demanding people. We have a, a, a brand of technology that we sell called Alienware. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and if you've ever dealt with a gamer, uh, their oh, yeah. networking requirements, their compute requirements are extreme. And so, yeah. you know, yeah, you're absolutely correct. You solve the problem of the kid being able to be productive in a remote environment and being able to be entertained and being able to be fulfilled. You apply the technology for that, it's probably a more extreme example than what a typical remote worker needs. And so, you know, don't underestimate it. Don't think of it as just a burden. It's in fact a huge innovation opportunity. I miss those conversations about whether the piece was dead uh, because clearly they had never met gamers at that point. Exactly. Because, I mean, those they they are the ones that are buying specialized cards so that they don't have a few milliseconds of delay uh, even yes. on a wired connection. Yep. I mean, Jitter is not your friend. Right. Special keyboards, <laughs> special nice tuning of the system. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the gaming's a pretty interesting, extreme example. I mean, I, I yeah. And the machines are 
pretty fascinating. It's amazing what kind of power you can get into a 14-inch device these days yeah. in, in a gaming rig because it's, uh, you know, it's just that's uh, what's amazing. Been, I mean, as a consumer, that's been exciting getting the, uh, I'll call it the technology runoff from, yeah. <laughs> from those pushes forward yeah. because we now have, in, you know, just ridiculous battery life, yep. um, incredible amount of storage and uh, compute capacity in something that doesn't break my back like it used to. Exactly. You know, probably back the time that we, <laughs> when you were with Nortel and we covered you back then, I think I was hauling around, you know, a, a good 40 pound pack or something exactly, like that. Exactly, exactly. Now, now I got a, a three pound, you know, Alienware <laughs> X14 that's got more power than, you know, yeah. most desktop machines. I mean, it's, that's it's a, pretty it's... remarkable. Um, well, before we sound like old guys for too yeah. long, um, <laughs> I, I do want to talk about, you know, because some of the, what I love about companies like Dell is that they're, they're, when they define their growth areas, when they sort of talk publicly about their growth areas, they're such a big company that covers so many uh, industry, you know, industry verticals, you know, either directly or, or indirectly, yeah. that it's a very good proxy for where technology is going. Yeah. What, I'm interested about the private mobility opportunity. Um, you know, I guess the disconnect so far, at least on the telecom side, has, has been that the the benefits of private 5G are definitely um, there on paper, but the commercial world hasn't woken up to them yet. Yeah. Are you uh, hearing or seeing any evidence of that changing anytime soon, or do you have uh, any new information to add? To yeah, that? yeah. I mean, uh, you know, the the thing to realize about well, for, first, if you rewind to why does 5G exist? Yeah. Um, 5G was not built to do faster YouTube. Right. <laughs> it, it can, right. but most of the advanced technology in 5G is enterprise targeted. Mm -hmm. you know, you know, ultra reliable, latency communication, massive machine type communication. These features in release 16, release 17 are absolutely nothing to do with you watching YouTube or even gaming. And so the fact that we have an underlying technology that was built for enterprise use cases is, is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. Our challenge is to apply it. And when we think about things like the, in the private mobility space, where you're talking about a dedicated network for a enterprise, whether it's a mod or a hospital or a logistics environment or any number of things, mm -hmm. we're still pretty early. And the, the, the reason for it is that, you know, one, release 16, release 17 technology is not really widely available yet. You really can't get those, so we're still getting those finished and starting to roll them out. Right. The second is enterprises don't consume technology the way that operators do. Operators' entire existence is to operate the network. They're exceptionally good at operating the network, planning RF, doing all of those things. Enterprises want nothing to do with that. They want it to be you know, a simple plug-and-play environment. And, right. and cellular, by and large, isn't that because it has an intelligent core. It has a lot of advanced services. And so the real thing that the industry is working towards is not necessarily the RF side. If Actually, when we calculate like the cost per square foot of coverage compared to Wi-Fi versus an enterprise 5G environment. On the RF side, it's very similar. The radio cost okay. is not much different. And in fact, it actually may be better for private 5G because the ranges tend to be better. The systems are slightly better RF. The, the hidden cost is the core services, the, the, the control plane, if you will. And it's not just the physical cost of those devices, it's the integration into the enterprise control plane. Enterprises already have a control plane. It's called their cloud architecture, their multi-cloud architecture. It's the way they build and deploy applications and manage infrastructure yeah. with VMware, or Red Hat, or whoever you're using, or a public cloud environment. Mm -hmm. And so where the, the gap is to really kind of catalyze this is twofold. One, we have to do that enterprise integration. We have to make the private 5G environment be a fully integrated extension of the overall orchestrated behavior of the enterprise. Okay. So when I deploy a new application for a new user, 
Right. I don't just automate the deployment of storage and compute and the workloads and the CI/CD pipeline, but I also am automating the deployment of the network slice and the RF behavior. And if I can get all of that working together, which is really where we're spending a great deal of our time, then operationally there really isn't a heavy burden of bringing private okay. 5G into the enterprise. So that's part A. Part B is we just don't have enough suppliers yet. You know, okay. uh, we, we've announced very publicly that we are entering this space. We are doing work in this space. We believe that through our ecosystem and directly, we will have private 5G offerings. Today, we can do it with partners, and we continue to have a very nice ecosystem, but we'll have a lot more. Okay. Uh, Amazon, similar statement, just yep. beginning that journey. And so you're seeing, you know, a number of players start to show up, but we're all kind of very early in that cycle. Fast forward a year from now, those two issues go away. We have a very clear line of sight about how to integrate into the enterprise. We're pretty good at enterprise. We know yeah. a lot about <laughs> telecom now. We can kind of put those two pieces together. Sure. We think that other players with similar backgrounds probably will solve that problem. And more importantly, we'll have commercial products in the market that are actually optimized to be built, sold, and operated in the context of an enterprise. So, so it's just a timing issue. Okay. And by the way, that synchronizes with when the kind of release 16, release 17 technologies start okay. to get a little more hardened. So it, it's timing, but I actually feel like the well, to give you an empirical data point, I don't think I've had a customer with a, a customer conversation with a tier one customer anywhere in the world that did not ask me about when and how can I take advantage of a private mobility solution. It okay. didn't matter what industry, they all, it's on their radar, kind of to your point about proxies. We picked that one not randomly, yeah. but because we saw long-term enterprise demand to build out these private environments associated with their mobility fabric. And it was usually very specific to something like underneath their robotics infrastructure or their transportation infrastructure. Yeah. So, so it's all, all timing, you know, okay. more than anything else. And well, and also the, the, that's a, uh, another kind of exciting data point, similar to the broadband thing, is that we're looking, we're pointing to a future too, where the, the telecom network operator is not just the only purveyor of this, yeah. that there are competitive entrance in the space that, that come from different backgrounds. Yeah. That's exciting. You know, it's funny because it actually turns out to be less competitive and more co-opetition, funny enough. That okay. we, we thought about this very carefully because we, we like our, you know, the tier one operators are incredibly important as are the rural broadband providers and, you know, and, but, you know, we were concerned that there would be some conflict over private 5G. And it turns out there, there really isn't because on one side, there, there are probably four or five different ways that private 5G can be instantiated. One is as a slice from an operator all the way to you own it and operate it yourself and everything okay. in the middle. Yeah. But it turns out that the operators play a role in many of those environments. And, and even if you build it yourself, you're going to have to make a choice. And the choice is what spectrum you use. You can use CBRS or you can use some kind of shared spectrum, but it turns out that if you're building a mission critical environment, you are very likely going to go to an operator and basically pay them for the right to use their spectrum in that particular area. Right. And they all have business models to do this. They own the spectrum, they right. want it to be used. And to them, it's kind of a, I may not build the network and maybe I don't even want to build the network, but I can monetize it by being able to let you use my spectrum. The other one that's very interesting now, if you've probably heard of this term called neutral host gateways, yeah. which is a fascinating thing that says, well, what if the private environment isn't completely separate from the public environment, but there's a neutral host gateway in the middle that allows those public networks to reach inside of the building to get into the public, private environment and extend their coverage mm -hmm. without the operator having to build and operate that part of it. Mm -hmm. The building owner builds the 5G network in the building. The neutral host gateway allows any of the public networks to reach into it. The enterprise is still in charge. And so you start blurring the line between public and private. And so for us, that makes us feel a lot better because we don't want to create 
dynamic tension and conflict between enterprise and telco. We actually right. want them to work together. And I think the long-term path for private 5G absolutely says it's a co-opetition, it's collaboration, okay. more than you know we're partitioning up the market into silos. That makes sense. It's a similar situation with the, the cloud providers and every, really every company that works exactly. with a cloud provider is competing with the cloud provider on some facet. Right. I mean, telcos are the more extreme example, but yep. every you know, every enterprise has the exact same thing. They yeah. might sell this kind of software and it's like, well, it turns out Amazon makes that too. Yeah, we, we, we sell a lot of storage. Yeah, we, right. we work with every cloud provider and in many cases our storage is sitting inside their environment or sitting on top right. of it. And so the world of, you know, balkanization of technology ecosystems doesn't quite work anymore. And what you need to do is try to figure out how to build a multi-cloud environment that's actually end-to-end. Right. -end. And that's very hard to do with a single provider of any flavor. And so it's kind of forcing us to all work better together and, you know, Dell's Ecosystem is a good example of that. You know, we work really closely with all the public clouds. We mm -hmm. work really closely with you know all the telecom operators, and you know, and we're not doing it because we just want to build an ecosystem. We're, you kind of have to do that to build a multi-cloud or to build right. a modern telco environment or to really make 5G useful. Okay. To, to last uh, point I wanted to get to that was also a, a you know a, a growth area ex explicitly was uh, edge, and. And you know, people have different definitions of the edge, but one of the things that you pointed out that I thought was interesting was this data management, you called it a new kind of workload. Yeah. Um, can you elaborate on that and maybe kind of give us a, 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 a feel for what Dell considers the edge because yeah. Dell, Dell has devices <laughs> in every flavor and every yeah. you know in every size. So I, I guess the edge can be wherever it wants, yeah, right? Yeah, the, 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 the Probably accurate, but also maybe snarky answer to that is the edge is everything that isn't in a data center. Right, and, okay. <laughs> and, and maybe even take it further, everything that isn't in a public cloud data center. Okay. Because the public clouds kind of view the enterprise data center as their edge. As their edge and yeah. so, so and, and what it really means is that, look, there are two types of topologies in the world of edge. Um, there, there's non-edge topologies in which you have effectively an aggregation of IT capacity that looks like infinite and near meaning you have infinite capacity to any kind of resource close to you. And you don't have to think about those two things. You don't have to think about scale and you don't have to think about distance. Right. The minute you move into the edge, you have to think about those two things. You have to th it's finite scale. There might be lots of edges, but at any one edge, it's got a certain amount of capacity and that's all that's there. And right. distance matters, which equals latency and performance. And so, yeah. so when those considerations come back into the IT discussion, you're in the edge, whether you're on a client device or whether you're in a far edge node that's kind of a gateway or whether you're in an intermediary data center in a, in a telco environment, those things start looking like edges the minute that distance and scale become considerations for how you build software and how you instantiate your data pipelines and all the other tools you're using. So um, to, to answer your question on the, the data side though, yeah, you know, I, I, one of the reasons, you know, look, we, we ship $5 billion worth of stuff into places that aren't data centers on our infrastructure business. Right. You know, it's a, it, a lot of it goes into data centers, but about $5 billion doesn't. Okay. And that stuff all is ending up in hospitals and cities and factories and the places that we now describe as edges. But when we looked at it, we, we asked the question of what is the demand for edge? Hmm. Is it just $5 billion that's always been there or is this growing? And so we looked at workloads, and the first workload we found was all of the public clouds. Yeah. <laughs> and it turns out that every one of them has to extend to the edge. For, right. for whatever they're doing, they're primarily assembling application pipelines and data pipelines, and they're processing data and building applications. And it turns out that all the data begins or ends its journey not in a data center, so they got to reach that. Right. And many of the applications, for lots of reasons, need to live closer to where the actual user of that application is. And so we, we clearly saw that with Anthos and Arc and Outpost and EKS, and that said, okay, this hunts 
we're going to have to build the infrastructure underneath that because they're actually not very good at building infrastructure out in the real world. We happen to be. Right. So that gave us the belief that in the multi-cloud world, Edge was actually a full participant in the topology regardless of which cloud stack you were using. And if you were using multiple ones, you really needed to think about how you build that Edge so you don't proliferate hundreds of Edges out there. Right. And that's kind of the unique niche for Dell is we can build that infrastructure for the cloud world and we're already working with all of them, and we even have systems where we can co-locate them. That the same system can be Arc plus VMware plus Red Hat plus K3S. Um, any event, the second thing that we found though is that we started looking at well, what else needs to live at the edge? Mm. And a couple of years ago, we kind of identified the the data management world because it turns out that the data management companies, uh, the Snowflakes, the Databricks, the Data Stacks, go through any of them. Yeah. All mostly started their journey in data centers, whether it be a public cloud or otherwise. But it turns out that they're now evolving to actually want to deal with the ingest and egress of data. They're starting to need to get closer to the data, but yet their core services, absolutely for scaling reasons, need to sit in data centers, which is, tells us that all of them are going to have to build an edge. And in fact, okay. a couple of months ago, we made a big announcement with Snowflake. Right. And what we're effectively doing with Snowflake is allowing them to hybridize, to okay. reach out into the real world, to have remote tables execute on-prem to simplify the data movement between an on-prem environment and a public cloud environment so the Snowflake services can work more streamlined and less overhead for the customer. And you know, our prediction is, look, I can't imagine a data pipeline that doesn't require some portion of its code to operate at the edge because right. that's where you ingest and egress all the data that whatever magic you're doing in the center is dependent on. And so, yeah. and it turns out that's playing out very nicely right now. And so that gives us even more confidence that edge is not just an interesting space, it's actually probably going to be one of the most dominant areas where people will have to spend time and attention making sure they get it right. Because mm -hmm. it may in fact be the only place in a multi-cloud topology that you can exert control over the end-to-end -end behavior. Mm -hmm. So think about this, if you're upstream using Microsoft, Amazon, and Google, and maybe even a private data center as your upstream services, right. but yet you're trying to provide those services to a factory. Right. <laughs> the factory is a singular entity, and right. the gateway between that factory and that multi-cloud world, actually the only place that it converges is at that edge. It's that IT system that sits between the upstream clouds and the real world. And so we see it as a really interesting innovation space. One, get it right, build the right platforms, make it scalable, automated, et cetera, but also think about what you can do to control things. Should you do load balancing there? Should you do disintermediation? Should you do advanced services there? And by the way, a neutral host gateway in 5G is an example of exactly that, a disintermediation right. point between a public and a private environment. And so yeah. that seems like it's going to be pretty exciting. <laughs> yeah, because you can't push all of that onto the factory IT, there, no. you know, the, or the enterprise and sort of expect them to run and to manage and Absolutely. all that. It has to be handled somewhere up the stack and the it's, cloud provider's yep. going to do so much, but yeah. not all of it. Exactly, and by the way, they don't work with each other. If right. you have three cloud providers, they have their yeah. own span of control and sphere right. of influence. You as the customer have to have a span of control and sphere of influence that covers all of them. Right. And the question is, where do you exert that control? And so we see that edge demarcation as not just a way to extend clouds, but as a way to exert control over the multi-cloud world. And that's why it's so interesting for us. We're early in that journey, but everything that we can see says the one of the most important decisions a customer will make is how do they build their edge in relation to their end users and devices and the clouds that they use because it has a very unique position sitting between the real world of right. their business and the virtual world of the services that they use. And so it seems like a pretty exciting place for us. That's why we placed a big bet there. We're already there, we're good at it, but yeah. it's even more important because it represents a lot of the future growth of the on-prem and private infrastructure is tied to how you build your edge. It's interesting too, because it, 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 it 
it takes away that um, sort of uh, stigma of, you know, like the edge just being a hardware play. It's oh. like, no, it could, it, you could be using, ex you're saying you could be using existing hardware there. It's, mm -hmm. a, it's more about the command and control. Exactly. And, and if you will, the orchestration of the cloud yeah. environment. Well, on the edge. One of the things that we've said about the edge is that there's actually two dialogues that have to happen there. There is a dialogue around the edge platform, mm -hmm. which starts with obviously the hardware pool, but it also is all of the what I'll call the you know one of the analysts I talked to coined this term called the zeros. Uh -huh. You know, you want your zero trust, your zero touch, your zero IT, your zero <laughs> admin, all to be handled right. by the platform. You don't want the upstream stuff to do that, and right. and that means that that platform isn't just hardware. It's it's a set of control plane services. It's things that make it a platform that can be dynamically used. The second discussion, though beyond the platform is the workload. Right. What are you running out there? And so Anthos is a workload, Arc is a workload, yeah. EKS is a workload. And it turns out that, you know, with the exception of Outpost, every edge stack from every cloud company and every data management company is already a software-defined package. It gets deployed as software. It doesn't actually have a hardware dependency other than it needs access to a capacity pool that can be dynamically instantiated and provided to it, which kind of says, hey, you know, you're going to have a discussion about how you extend IT capacity out into the real world. That's the edge platform. And then you're going to have a discussion about what do you do with it? Mm. And the what you do with it is becoming quite populated with data management companies and cloud companies and IoT companies, all building packages that need to run out on these edge environments. And you know, our biggest concern is, and we use this term edge proliferation, is you need to avoid a situation where for every edge workload, you have to build an edge infrastructure. Right. That's untenable because there are going to be hundreds of edge workloads potentially in a factory or a hospital or even a retail environment might yeah. have a half a dozen of them. And so by separating the platform from the workload discussion, you start to get uh, kind of back to the world that we know pretty well. It's called virtualization. It's right. what we did in data centers. But we need to do it at a more extreme level because the things that are running on those edge platforms are cloud stacks. They're not right. just a workload. They have all kinds of other ancillary infrastructure components in them. And so it's a new new world, but it is a bit of a replay of what we did to make data centers efficient over time. It's just now we're doing it for the multi-cloud world, which is an entirely new experience for everybody. But it should be pretty exciting. Well, I think that's a good place to leave it for now. Uh, lot to look forward to, and uh, uh, again, it, it, setting a time and place for the, the listener. We are at, in a conference. We were, were doing this in a, in a meeting room that was lent to us. Um, icicles are forming on the edge of my nose <laughs> because this meeting room is very, very cold, yes. and you have a keynote to give, so I don't exactly. want to give you the flu before you, you have to go on stage. So John Rose, thanks so much for uh, taking the time. I appreciate it. Great. Thanks, Phil. Good to see you.